Good job, Cat. They don't call her Killer Cat for nothing. Merry Christmas, everyone. We're in LA. People are already leaving to their homelands, away from their. This, this is our homeland, right? But to their other homelands. And uh, so a lot of, a lot of individuals are, are getting their, their sheep costumes ready. They're, they're getting the pulley for the angels. But not us, no. We say, bye, Merry Christmas. See you in a couple weeks. No, it's a good break and we're so glad that uh, we can take that time intentionally. And you know, one day Jason said he's really passionate about the Christmas pageant. So maybe next year, Jason, right? That's good. You know, we, we are developing our children's program, so you never know what we're gonna get in 365 days. So, that's right, that's right. Married couples, you got some work to do, let's go. Well, welcome. If I've not met you yet, my name is Tommy Martinson. I get to lead this church. It's a huge joy and honor to do so here in West LA. And um, man, I'm really excited for what we're diving into today. We've been in a series of Advent. If you're not familiar, Advent means waiting or coming. It's a time of year that we intentionally remember, we reflect, we respond, and we rejoice knowing that Jesus came Fully God, fully man came to earth and he, he brought forth the kingdom of God. He brought forth salvation from sin and death and brought a victory from the grave. And so now we're in a time of waiting once again where we're waiting for the second coming of Jesus. But we have an eternal hope that knows no bounds. And so while we're in this time of Advent again, we have a joyful expectancy of the goodness of God that is coming soon. And so last week I preached on faith in the waiting. How many of you were here for that? Faith in the waiting. Lift your hands a little higher. That was a little timid today. I'm going to need an amen from someone. I'm going to need a hallelujah from someone. I'm going to need a uh. Double up. Uh, uh. Something like that. Whatever, whatever your heart responds, really. That, that, wasn't, that wasn't planned. Okay. Just felt it. Unction of the Spirit. So this week, I want to open up to Luke chapter 2, and we're going to examine the Christmas story from Luke's gospel. You guys did such a good job last time. Um, I, yeah, to, be, to be really honest with you guys, I, I, I was... I was going into a lot of scripture. I wasn't sure if you could hang with me. And you guys, A++. You know, like extra credit, honestly. You guys were hanging with me. And so today, we're going into Luke chapter 2. And I want to preach on power and glory revealed in the Son. You know, we're looking at... Just wait. Everyone, they're, they're already rumbling and waiting in the front row with expectancy. You know, this time of year at Christmas, you know, we think about the Christmas. There's a lot happening over here. If you guys could cool it. There's sneezing. There's beckoning happening. No, it's good. I revved you up. It was my fault. All right. So in the Christmas season, guys, I grew up in central North Carolina. Now, some people say, North Carolina, that's not the South. And I say, I had more NASCAR driver kids in my class than you'd imagine. We had Terry Labonte's kids. We had Bobby Labonte's kids. I'm like, some of you have no idea who those are because you don't live in North Carolina. So I made it out without the accent uh, somehow, but here I am in Los Angeles. But in the middle of central North Carolina takes place a little movie called Talladega Nights. And if you can recall, for those who are old enough, Will Ferrell sitting around the table, and they, they sit down to have a nice meal, and they start praying to little baby Jesus. Sweet little baby Jesus, bless this meal, lady baby Jesus. Now, a lot of us look at Christmas with these lenses, that this is, this is kind of just a cheesy a cheesy time to open up scripture and yeah, I've heard about the manger and all the different areas, 
But what I want to peel open today is that power and glory that is revealed in the sun. This is not just a little pat on the back kind of Christmas sermon. I want to go deep today about the meaning and the power. And I do believe that if we open up our hearts, there will be a fresh impartation of the grace of God, of wisdom and revelation when it comes to reading and, and the breath of God being realized in our lives as we open up to the passage of the Christmas story. So let's do that together. Luke has given us 20 verses to report on the birth of Jesus. And this is the only account of the birth of Christ given by the authors in all of the four Gospels. Mark and John, they don't even mention it. They jump right into the ministry of Jesus as a fully grown man. And Matthew's account, remember he wrote this to the Jews. He gives us two quick moments. The angel that visits Joseph before Jesus was born to encourage, hey Joseph, you're not going to want to leave Mary. This is from God. And Joseph, in the middle of this dream with Gabriel, is realizing the, the power of what God is doing in the moment. And there's something that shifts within him, despite the potential embarrassment, despite how uncomfortable this is, that the, the woman that he's engaged to be married with is pregnant, not by him. He's chosen to partner with faith to see it through. And secondly, in Matthew, just as Sarah pointed out this morning, there's the interaction of the Magi with King Herod. And King Herod is an absolute lunatic. He's wildly suspicious of any, any new person or king or individual that might upset what he's trying to rule. And so there's that interaction in Matthew with the wise men. But Matthew doesn't tell any details of the birth of Christ necessarily. So it's left up to Luke, who is a divinely inspired doctor and he's a historian. And you can tell that he's a doctor by the way that he writes. He's very intentional with the details that he chooses to include. And what Luke has chosen to report, it's because it's all so brief, so it must contain great significance in each element that he presents. All of the facts that surround the birth of the Savior King, these are the elements that he chose to include in the story. So they must be important to us as followers of Jesus. And within this short 20-verse account lies heaps of significance to our faith. And so today we're going to be looking at the rich meaning of the birth of Christ and how all of this history is shaped by these events that took place. A little, little context for us as we're turning to this passage. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. As you're flipping there, Immediately prior to this portion of scripture that we're going to read is the account of the birth of John the Baptist. If you're familiar with this scripture, John the Baptist was a, a, a child that was born to Zacharias and Elizabeth. They had been waiting and waiting for the promise of God as well. We talked about Abraham and Sarah last week. Well, um, Elizabeth and Zacharias were waiting for their own miracle to take place, and this was was John the Baptist that was born to them. And so the first chapter talks about how this child was prophetically preparing the way for the Messiah and his ministry. And so here we are in Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 1. You're going to get familiar with this. Let's go ahead and stand up. You guys voted last week to read together. It was a nice old time. So we're, we're going to be practicing again, reading together. If you can see the screen, speak a little louder. All right. All right. Ready? In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Crinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, 
and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying, and that they had been told, I messed up, I always mess up at the end. That like eight tenths mark, just, I, I trip right there. Okay. <clears throat> Let's start at verse 17. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus, the name given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Good job, everyone. Give yourself a round of applause. You can sit down. You guys do pretty good at like hanging together with that. Guys, let's pray together. Holy Spirit, we ask right now that the words that we just spoke out, they are living and they're active and they cut. And I pray, God, that, that you would do that in our hearts this morning, that we would actually learn how to worship you as truth is revealed. Would we open up our minds, our hearts, our souls, even our bodies to receive all from you that you have for us? Would we be led by our spirit into all truth, led by you, the Holy Spirit? Illuminate. I ask that you anoint my words. Would you smother it with, with your very presence? And would the goodness of God be revealed this morning? Amen. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to talk about um, four different truths about the way that God's kingdom operates in our lives. This specifically has to do with Luke chapter 2. So number one, let's put that on the screen. God's decrees are superior to the powers of the world. It said that in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. These first seven verses were found to be almost, you could call them, secular. They're, they're kind of worldly in their presentation. There actually seems to be an odd absence, actually, of God's work. Where is God's hand here? There's no miraculously shimmering setting. It's all just very real life. Yeah. And if you're new to this story, you might even be disappointed by the events that are unfolding. Wait, so you're telling me that God's people are waiting for a savior king, and they've waited for hundreds of years, and that's it? Yeah. They're traveling by donkey, uh -huh. and then they're trying to get into an inn 
which it does say the inn. So there seems to be kind of one primary place in Bethlehem where they would have gone, any traveler, and stayed. But they're not even welcomed in at the inn. Kicked out of the local motel, given, giving birth in a dirty and smelly cave for livestock. Doesn't that sound a little sad? But the lackluster human conditions is contrasted dramatically in verse 8 through 20 with the miraculous. Let's look first at the natural circumstances first when we see uh, the heavenly dynamics then revealed in the verses that are following. So at this time, Caesar had issued a decree for the entire Roman world. The whole purpose was he was setting them up so there could be further taxation coming soon. And with one command, one word, the entire Roman Empire had to obey. That's called a lot of authority. For the Jewish population, registering for this census was not only inconvenient for them, it was just another slap in the face, a reminder that they were once again under this oppressive power, forcing them to abide by their ways waiting for their freedom to come, waiting for a political revolt by the Messiah to rescue them out. And why do we need to know about these specific details? Remember, we only have 20 verses that Luke gives us. Why are these details important? Why should we care about the census? We know from the very first verse in the book of Luke that he had actually written this letter. This gospel was written to a man named Theophilus. Luke actually addresses him as most excellent Theophilus. Luke and Acts are both addressed to this man Theophilus, and each time he refers to him as most excellent. Why is that? This language is for a political official who has high standing. Therefore, it's suggested suggested by theologians and historians that Theophilus was a man of high political power. So someone who holds this kind of high political power or office in the Roman world would have been absolutely interested of what information is happening at this time in the Roman world. Another reason for these facts is that Luke also wanted to remove any kind of soft once upon a time in his narrative. This was not just a fairy tale. This was not just an extended prophetic metaphor. This was historical fact with real events and real places. And here's the point. Theophilus was a Gentile with this high-level political career, and Luke knows that he would be greatly impacted understanding that as powerful as Caesar is, powerful enough to decree a word and everyone has to obey in the land, how much greater is the hand of God in his sovereignty to work through the kings of the earth to accomplish his will in this time to fulfill his purposes, even by means of a pagan ruler. Theophilus would have been undone at this notion. Side note here, we get a quick lesson in evangelism from this portion of scripture as well, because through the communication of gospel, Luke could have turned back to Micah 5 and talked about the prophetic words of Jesus being born in Bethlehem, but he he skips that, and he goes straight into something that that isn't, isn't taking away from the core parts of the gospel, but he's just deciding with wisdom which parts are necessary for his specific audience. He didn't dare change the gospel for his audience, but he was careful to select which areas to focus on in order to have a greater impact for his audience. And so number one, God's decrees are superior to the powers of the world. And number two, our surrendered obedience draws the miraculous. Let's read together. Verse four, Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem because he was of the house and the lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him in swaddling cloths, laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them or no place for them in the inn. 
So hundreds of years prior, the prophet Micah had prophesied that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. The Jewish people were very aware of this prophecy. In Matthew's account, in Matthew's gospel, he shows us that when King Herod was questioning the wise men, where is this new savior king that you talk about? He, he brought in some Jewish leaders and, and gathered these chief priests to ask, where will this king be? And let's read together Matthew 2 that quotes Micah 2. They said to him, he will be born in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will be shepherd, who will shepherd my people Israel. But Luke's purpose wasn't to connect the dots of the Old Testament prophecy. He was writing to a Gentile who wouldn't have been familiar with these prophecies. So he instead emphasizes the simple, humble circumstances of the birth. Mary and Joseph had to take a journey from Nazareth to Bethlehem. That is about a five to seven day journey on the back of a donkey. Remember that she is nine months pregnant. This would have been like traveling right from here to Santa Barbara. That's exactly 90 miles. And all while Mary was nine months pregnant, tossed around on the back of a donkey. Usually God's plans for our life aren't the most comfortable, but his plans are always best. But our surrendered obedience is positioning us for the miraculous power of God to be released into our lives and into our settings. Not only was this uncomfortable, it would have been emotional. Not only were you feeling incredibly misunderstood, looking like someone who had just had sex before marriage with someone and gotten pregnant, but after all of this, your mother, your friends, your doctor, they're all absent. And you have to do this with your future husband. There's so much that's unknown, in an unknown territory, far away from home, far away from safety. Think back to a time in your life where maybe you felt incredibly misunderstood. Sometimes when we feel most misunderstood, it's because we actually are holding within us a pure heart and pure motives. And so whatever we have stepped into, people choose to look at it not through the lens of what is true, but have made accusations and have made questions. And, and there's a prodding that takes place. And it, it just hurts so deeply when, when you, you don't know if the individuals that you're trying to reason with can reason at all. And it feels incredibly hard to be misunderstood. Well, imagine what Mary must have been going through, Joseph must have been going through, as they're pregnant before they're married. When we tell the Christmas story or we make films about it, we take a lot of liberty to fill in the gaps because the narrative doesn't give us that much detail. We're told a few things. We're informed that there's, there's not room at the inn. It seems as though there's one primary place for these travelers. But because of the census, it's all full. Secondly, we're told that they found a stable. You know, normally, we kind of create this crash scene with the wooden stable. It, it very well could have been wooden, but more than likely, it was a cave in the side of a hill. This is a very um, uh, rocky territory outside of Jerusalem, and the shepherds would have carved or found a place in the hillside to build this kind of stable. And Luke only gives us a few details here. He talks about swaddling cloths. So in ancient times, these, these strips of cloth were wrapped around babies to keep them warm and to help them feel secure. And then it tells us about the manger, either a simple wooden structure for feeding animals or it was carved in the side of the hillside out of stone. But either way, it was deep enough to hold the child. But God moved through the ordinary and he moved through the uncomfortable, these humble conditions. Through all of the frustrations of the moment, there was probably a lot of wondering where God was 
and when he would show up as God. But these momentary sufferings are often used as instruments in the hands of God. And in time, he will make it clear what his purposes are. And we're not going to want it any other way. When we look back and see that he's been faithful every step of the journey. You know, in these first few verses, there's, there's, there's no hand of God showing up. Where's God? He came in a dream. He came as an angel. Where is he now? Is there going to be another angel on the journey? But it's just the ordinary. It's being faithful with surrendered obedience in the uncomfortable, following his lead. So number one, God's decrees are superior to the powers of this world. Number two, our surrendered obedience draws the miraculous. And number three, the miraculous reveals the truth of God. We're going to look at verse 8 through 15 for that. If you're thinking of this kind of like a film, there's a suddenly, there's a shift into a new setting in Bethlehem. This is where the miraculous starts to begin. Verse 8. In the same region there were shepherds out in the field keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them. And the glory of the Lord shone around them. And they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you... Born this day in the city of David, a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those whom he is pleased. And when the angels went away from them into heaven, the the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that's happened, which the Lord has made known to us. So here we are introduced in this scene to the shepherds. Shepherds as a class of people were one of the most looked down upon people at the time. They were considered loathsome to the Egyptians. They were dirty, no good men who weren't even uh, to give evidence in the court of law. So if you had some sort of evidence, if you witnessed a crime as a shepherd, you couldn't even share your testimony in a court of law. They were considered unclean by the Jewish people because of handling livestock. But isn't it just like God to choose the most unlikely people to appear to? Right in the middle of their night shift, where they would have been taking turns looking over the sheep before them, Many of these sheep would have been actually taken to the temple to be offered as sacrifices. But right in the middle of their ordinary appears the blazing glory of God and an angel of the Lord. Verse 9 says, An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. What is their response to this glory of God being revealed? Fear. The King James even says they were sorely afraid. That is really, really afraid. Shaking down on their faces. That's a deep, anguishing, fear shuddering within them. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. The phrase, I bring you good news, is Greek. It's the verbal form of gospel. This is the gospel in action. It's for all people. This would be great joy for everyone who receives this message by grace. Israel and every nation will benefit and be transformed by his birth. Verse 11, for unto you born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. These three titles reveal the greatness of this son. He is Savior. He is Christ, which is Greek for the Hebrew Messiah. It is a title. It is not a name. His last name is not Christ. His title is Christ, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Anointed One. The announcement 
they probably didn't fully get it. <laughs> they're in fear. They're just marveling at what's taking place. They didn't fully get that the Messiah is born as a baby and he's also the Lord God himself. And here is the heavenly confirmation of the declaration of his lordship. Verse 13, and suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Following the proclamation of the good news, the good news for all mankind, there is a suddenly, a shift into the glory of God. All of a sudden, thousands of angels appear. That is what is called a host. It is an angel army that appears to them, singing songs of praise and adoration to Jesus. A powerful confirmation of the angel's declaration. And what's the result of this miraculous encounter? Following this supernatural event, the shepherds were absolutely charged with hope and excitement to find the baby that the angels said existed in Bethlehem. And as they went out throughout the town in the middle of the night, this was their treasure hunt. They had a few clues. They, they, they knew that there was swaddling clothes and there was a boy. They knew there was a manger. And the truth of God had to be revealed in the miraculous. And they were setting out to see the face of God himself. There's something about the miraculous that brings an appetite for the greater things of God. The miraculous reveals who God is, the truth about him, and the miraculous reveals the face of Christ. I remember when I was a bit newer to the miraculous, you know, I had known the Lord for years and years, but a lot of what I had been studying, I, I went to school to study scripture. I was, I was setting out to be a missionary overseas somewhere. But in the middle of my zeal and passion, it turned into just studying a textbook. My prayers became weak and dry, and God felt distant. I, I knew that his word was alive and living, I knew it was supposed to be about relationship, and I, I had bits and pieces of, of what I knew about my relationship with God. I had moments of his nearness. But I knew that there was something about the power of God and the presence of God that I needed in my life. And I was in the middle of a Presbyterian church in Chicago, a really cool little church that had a Full on, they had like plays in Sunday afternoon and the, the percussion were like homemade percussion instruments and they had like professional singers. It was, it was a cool vibe, cool vibe in the Presbyterian church. But right there in the middle of just instrumental worship, beautiful instrumental worship, where it was, it was quiet except for the music. And all of a sudden I started to feel a familiar stirring in my spirit. And just quietly, I felt the rushing wind of the Holy Spirit move within me and draw out a soft speaking out in tongues and just bringing adoration before Jesus. And there was something of that moment where there was a tangible fruit in my life. And it didn't stop there. It awakened something in me. It was, it was like flipping a switch within my spirit. And I said, whatever the cost, I've got to go after the more of God whatever the cost. And so it started a journey, and, and one of the first things I went to was a conference in Charlotte, North Carolina, and a man named Randy Clark and Bill Johnson were doing a conference. And I remember a shift took place that day because they had a team of people come up and start calling out what they felt God was highlighting that was to be healed in that moment. So they would call out skin cancer. They would call out ringing in your ears, whatever it might be on the stage. And then they encouraged you, okay, if that's you, stand up, and then the people around you will pray for healing. My only experience with healing was turning on TBN and seeing certain figures. <laughs> certain wonderful figures that would wave their coat and someone would be healed or fall over on the ground and be healed. It was all about the stage. 
It was all about the man or woman of God on the stage that would bring the healing power. But the switch came when every single saint is activated as a minister of the gospel and as a conduit of heaven. Do you know that you're a living lightning rod of heaven? Did you know it was never meant to be about the man of God on stage bringing people up to pray for them? It's meant to be about each one of you in this environment creating and fostering a place of God's presence where anything in the miraculous is possible. But then we carry that out. We carry it out. We are living lightning rods of God's power. He is attracted to you and wants to move through you. Impossibility always bows at the feet of Jesus. And so here, I'm sitting in, up, up above, and I'd seen this man as we, were, as we were going throughout the conference. He had a big spot on his face. I assumed it was skin cancer. And all of a sudden, this big cluster of people start jumping up and down because this old man who had skin cancer, in the middle of worship, in the middle of focusing our eyes on Jesus and just letting Jesus have his way in the room, the cancer fell off his face and into his hands. Some people say God is not weird. He is the same God that makes donkeys talk. He is the same God that chose to have every animal onto a wooden boat. He can be a little weird. Well, this, this particular day, I had seen a miracle of cancer being healed. Another shift in my life. This is possible? Hold on, hold on. I've been a believer for, at the time, 20 years-ish, 18 years. This is possible? You're telling me that the ministry of Jesus, where he healed the sick, cleansed the leper, and raised the dead, is still possible? Some of you right now are struggling with that a little bit, and you've gone through some dispensational theology. That's okay. I love you guys. But I got to tell you, the perfect has not yet come. His name is Jesus, and he's coming soon. A lot of people stop there because they think once we have the word of God, then miraculous is not necessary anymore because the word is all we need. And I go, why are you even praying then to be healed? Why even pray? Is that contradictory? Is the son against the father? Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the leper. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. Signs and wonders will follow those who believe. This is not a time to bow out because you've been disappointed a few times and have not seen a miracle take place. We are not those who align our theology based off our, our negative experiences. We line our theology to the word of God that has commissioned us to be those that go out bringing God's peace, his joy, his righteousness, his cleansing power that the blood of Christ can be applied to every situation, setting, and circumstance. This, this is not a time to, to doze off. We are those that have our lamps lit, ready. Will we be a people with our lamps lit, ready for the return of Jesus? All right, that's all for free. That wasn't in my notes. Fire it up, Lord. God's decrees are superior to the powers of this world. Our surrendered obedience draws the miraculous. The miraculous reveals the truth of God. And finally, God's power and glory can move through anyone. Verses 16 through 20. And they went with haste, and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary 
treasured up all of these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told to them. One of Jesus' names is Emmanuel. It means God with us. The simplicity and the humility of his birth is a unique identifier with the shepherds. He too had no house to dwell in and just a simple place. It would have been very similar to the places they would have been staying. He too was poor and of no reputation as they were. It was all pointing to who Jesus was. He was both the sacrificial lamb and the good shepherd. Through the setting of his birth, he was intentionally connecting to the identity of these shepherds. It's a powerful demonstration by God, a portrayal of ultimate humility and identification with men, the most simple, the most humble men who were rejected and despised by other men. He entered the world in ultimate humility, and he hung on the cross in ultimate humility. He is the servant king. It's fascinating the way that God orchestrated this. He didn't tell them the exact location because through their awe and their wonder, they must have been knocking on every single door, calling out to the neighbors, telling them everything that had just happened. Right in the middle of the night, these shepherds were lit up, knocking on the door. Hey, we're looking for a baby. Have you heard the cry of a baby? Going through all this little town in Bethlehem. This was like a treasure hunt. And they only had a few clues. There was a newborn. This was a boy. He was going to be in a manger wrapped in strips of cloth. Can you imagine this scene? It's the middle of the night. They're pounding on doors, shouting at neighbors. Let me tell you what I just saw. It's possible that this little town was, is it possible that this little town was lit up with a buzz and an excitement about what these shepherds had seen? Or potentially, they were a little annoyed. Can these shepherds shut up? <laughs> Trying to get some sleep. Those crazy shepherds at it again. The whole town would have had a sense of anticipation or a mid-level annoyance of being awoken in the middle of the night. How smart God was to give them these clues because after seeing the child, I'm sure they had to retrace their steps, informing everyone early the next morning of what they had just seen, bringing a second point of contact to the declaration of the good news. Remember, these are shepherds. They are banned from any kind of testimony and witness in court of law, but those are the ones that God chose to bring testimony and witness to his son on the earth. Why did he choose them? God loves to choose the weak and foolish things of the world to confound the wisdom of the wise. And more important than the eloquence and the reputation of the messenger is the power of the message itself. It's for all people. It's the upside-down kingdom. God loves to use the simple. He loves to use the ordinary. His own disciples who became apostles most of which were simple, ordinary, unschooled men. But they had been transformed by being with Jesus and filled and emboldened with the Holy Spirit. Verse 19, but Mary treasured up all of these things. She pondered them in her heart. Can you imagine what a shock it must have been for Mary and Joseph in the middle of the simplicity of the stable that they were giving, giving birth in? There's now shepherds knocking on the door, trying to get in. They're glowing with excitement of what just happened. And verse 19 tells us that Mary treasured up all of these things. She pondered them in her heart. And just as it took the disciples years of being with Jesus, following him in, in his ministry, listening to his words, seeing the miraculous, seeing some of these these mystical expressions coming out of his mouth, seeing his death and then his resurrection and then his ascension. 
just as it took them years to get it until after he left and the promise of the Holy Spirit came, I'm sure Mary too would have had a similar experience of not understanding everything that was going on, but she would have sat with it. She would have deeply considered it. She would have pondered and dwelt on these things. The account that we have of the birth of Christ reminds us of a biblical principle. It's called the biblical principle of proportion. Luke's gospel, like I said, is the only detailed account of the birth of Jesus. And in contrast, all four gospels describe Jesus' arrest, his trial, his crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, and his ascension, all in great detail. And so the principle of proportion shows us that when this much content is emphasized, how much more important is that content? The death and the resurrection of Christ is that much more important to the gospel writers. And why is that? Because it's his death and it's his, it's his resurrection that saves us. It's the atoning work of the cross for salvation. Though our culture loves to celebrate the little baby Jesus, there is a stark contrast between the manger and the cross. The manger, it's cute, it's less threatening, it's nostalgic, it's easy for our culture to digest. Yet the image of Jesus on the cross is offensive, it's uncomfortable, and it causes us to examine our own hearts. Many of us prefer the warm, fuzzy feelings of the stable scene. Psychologically, we kind of like that it's, it's God who's the one that's weak and needs us, rather than an almighty God who calls us into obedience and calls us into worship where we desperately need him. The description of Jesus by John in the book of Revelation is the way that he is and he will be for all of eternity. Can we read that together? Revelation 1, 4 through 7. Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come and from the seven spirits who are before the throne and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of the kings of the earth. To him who loves us and released us from our sins by his blood, and he has made us to be a kingdom, priests to his God and Father. To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. The king, the king that came the first time as a baby boy is indeed coming again. But this time as a righteous judge in all authority. The second coming will look totally different than the first. His first appearance to humble himself, to die, to save, his next experience to judge and to make all things new, establishing his kingdom on earth and to rule over all creation. So I want to ask us this morning, are we ready to face this King Jesus? Have we made him king of our lives, king of our world? And are we, are we ready to, to wait with our lives that he has prepared. Are we ready? Would you guys go ahead and stand up with me? We're going to take communion. In just a moment, there is communion on the back table where you get coffee. But we got some things to consider this morning, don't we?
Would you close your eyes with me for a moment before we get communion? God, I for one am so thankful that I was able to dive into this this week and to have a fresh vision and fresh eyes to see the glory and the majesty of the birth of Jesus, what that means for my life, how it changes me and transforms me, how it shows who Jesus is. It shows his heart. And I thank you, God, that though sometimes we feel unqualified, sometimes we feel weak, sometimes we feel like we don't know what's up and down, but we want to respond like your followers here with a simple, faithful obedience and say, Jesus, be king of our lives. Once again, we, we commit our paths to you. We want to follow you, God. The areas that we've gone off the trail and ventured into our own ways, we repent and turn back to you. We return back to the high place. Holy Spirit, change the lenses. Change our mind. Let us align with truth. Let us, let us align with the plumb line of who you are that we can see things rightly with discernment and with wisdom. And I pray, God, that the next days to come, there would be a greater unveiling of the majesty and glory of who you are. If the wise men that didn't even know you dropped everything for potentially years to follow after what they didn't even know to be you, how much more can we drop everything to pursue you? The one that pursued and loved us first, we simply respond. So I thank you, God. I can feel by the Holy Spirit that you're just rejuvenating hearts this morning. The places that were lifeless and dull, you're breathing new life. The Ruah, Holy Spirit of God, breathing new life in us once again, where we return to the daily step-by-step -step with you, walking with you, abiding with you, finding our power in you, finding grace and enablement for every day. We love you, Jesus. We honor you. All right, let's take a moment and go ahead and get communion and just take it back to your seat. try to remain quiet. I want us to actually, when you, when you get communion, just take out the, the little piece of pseudo bread. Would you just hold it in your hands? And you guys can take a seat. Let's just take a moment. With my nieces and nephews, they say, get in your prayer cave. I really believe the Holy Spirit wants to give a grace this morning to you in your area of need. If you need healing in your body, think about the stripes upon his back that paid for your healing. Some of you can just sit 
become aware of his presence. with his disciples and he took bread and he broke it and he said this is my body it was broken for you Jesus is the bread of life he's our daily bread he's our sustainer he's our manna reflect Jesus, we're we're never going to be able to get over it because scripture tells us that into eternity we'll be discovering the grace and the glory of the cross. So we ask that even today you would reveal at deeper level the meaning of the broken body of Jesus. His body hanging there for you. Some of you can even look to him upon the cross. Fix your gaze with him. It's not meant to bring just just a condemnation. There might there might be a holy move of the spirit of conviction, but it's always to lift you into a heavenly place. So Jesus, we take this bread and eat it and remember you this morning. Let's take it together. And then he took the cup of wine. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant. God that we're in the new covenant. Thank you, Jesus, that you have become our Sabbath rest. The wine is rich with symbolism. It's a symbol of his liquid love. His blood poured out, spilled out for us. Red wine, a symbol of redemptive power, reconciliation, the cleansing flow of Jesus. I think back to the blood that was applied to the door frames of the Israelites while they were in Egypt. The blood of the Lamb. They would hang the pure spotless lamb. They would hang it up and the blood would drip down into a basin. And then they would apply it to the door frames of their house. What rich imagery of the son of God hanging on a tree, letting his blood be poured out to the pure spotless lamb and then applying it to the door frames of our lives where no death can enter in eternal life, security. We thank you, God, and we apply the blood of Jesus to our lives even right now. And I think about the beautiful intoxication of wine, how Song of Solomon says to come into my wine cellar. This is an intoxicating kind of love. So we drink of your love this morning, God, and we do this in remembrance of you.
Let's drink together. with a blessing. I bless each and every one of you today that your days and weeks to come, that when you're with your family, that that same blood of the Lamb applies to your life. That there would be a redemptive flow that takes place. That there'd be a grace and preparation as you go with your friends and family over the holiday to be Jesus to the world around you. To be Jesus to your families. The things that would have bothered you before just fall away, and you're, you're in the zone with Jesus. I thank you, God, for the rich connection that you're establishing in your people so that we can thrive in every environment. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.